Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Hey, for any of you that are like freaking out, anyone freaking out about the weather change here? Um, well, let me just say this. I was in Minnesota this week and it went from like 90 and humid down to 50 the next day. And so I started asking people like, is this normal? I'm freaking out. Like, is this the end of the world? I've never seen this kind of change. And, and, and I, I asked several people actually, and, and everyone I talked to, they're like, oh, sure, you betcha. Uh, so... <laughs> It could be worse. It could be worse. I'm here to report it could be worse. But um, and to those of you who were here Wednesday, and I know my Minnesota accent did not get any better. Um, but I had a great time learning from a bunch of really smart, Jesus-loving pastors this week. And I'm very happy to be back here because I don't mind the 90-degree weather as long as there's no humidity. Uh, anyway, with that said, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We'll be in Genesis chapter 16, where we're going to be continuing our series uh, through the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, through the story of this great man of faith. And what we've seen so far in this series is that living by faith really does lead to a great life. Um, it leads to a life of adventure and love and victory and hope. Uh, we've seen Abram uh, chase back foreign armies, quell family conflicts. We have seen this man uh, out there changing the world as he has lived on a fantastic adventure of trusting the God who called him back when he was a, a pagan man in a pagan land. And um, what we're seeing in this series, what I hope you're seeing is, is that if you live by faith in this same God of Abraham, then your life too can become a fantastic adventure in trusting him. I hope you're seeing that so far. Um, what we're going to see today is kind of the flip side of this. Uh, we're going to see what happens when you don't live your life by faith. Because what we're going to see in our text today is even faith-filled people have faithless days. Um, in today's text, it's, it's brutal. I'll warn you from the outgo. It's, um, but here's what it's going to do. I think it's going to help us understand our world a little bit better. And if you hang in there, uh, there's hope in this text in the midst of all of the darkness. Because uh, even faith-filled people have faithless days. And we're going to learn today from one of the worst days of Abram's life. Uh, for, uh, to, hopefully this story is going to encourage you. We'll see how it goes, all right? Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Does anyone see any potential conflict on the horizon here? True or false, two wives is too many. Verse 4. We got to laugh today because, wow, what we're headed into. Verse 4, And when he went into Hagar, she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with, on, uh, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, hold on a minute. I'm just kidding. That's on the Hebrew. He says, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. 
Um, I'll be really honest with you. I was reading this story on the plane this week, and I got off the plane after kind of the first run through of the text, and I texted Karen. I said, this story this week is just crazy. Um, I gave her the basic play-by-play, how Sarai, uh, she's getting tired of waiting on God. And so she says, I'm not able to conceive. And so she comes up with this plan. Abram, why don't you sleep with this gal that works for me? And maybe I'll get a child by her. And Abram says, are you sure? And she says, yeah, I'm sure. And he's like, really, you're not going to be mad. This is your idea. Are you sure you want to do this? And she goes, yeah, sure. It's a great plan. He said, really? It's a great plan? Yes, it's a great plan. Go ahead and do it. And so Abram does. And the second that she conceives, which was the plan, Sarai loses her mind and says, Abram, how could you do this to me? Is is anyone feeling just a little bit bad for Abram here? Like, this is nuts. I'd have some serious questions if I were Abram. So I'm texting Karen like, this story is crazy. Sarah's going to become a really godly woman. In this text, she's a really crazy woman. So I text this to my wife in my wisdom, and she texts me back and says, if only Abram could lead. How many of you are like Karen and you're like, yeah, this story is messed up, but if I'm going to be embarrassed for anyone in this story, it's definitely Abram for how he behaves in this text. Yeah, and all the ladies said absolutely. Okay, here's the the thing. (laughs) Um, You're both right. This story is a hot mess all around. Uh, Abram is a mess. Sarai is a mess. And here's the thing. God included this messy story in the scriptures for our instruction. And so what I want to do this morning is just run through this story, looking through the lens of one character at a time. If you've ever seen a TV show where they're going to show you a story from one person's perspective, and then you learn something, and then you go to another person's perspective, that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this and try to take whatever lessons God has for us in including this here. This week, I was like, really, God, did Genesis 16 need to be in there? God assured me, yes, it does. And by the end of today, I think you'll see why. But we're going to look one character at a time and consider the lessons God has for us here. And let's start with Sarai who's later going to be renamed Sarah. Um, so I'm going to go with Sarah because I couldn't get my brain to say Sarai all week. So same person, she gets renamed just like Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, but let's start with her. Ladies first. Um, so, so we read in the text, it's now been 10 years since God called Abram and Sarah out of Ur. And so Sarah is beginning to experience some doubt like we saw with Abram last week. Uh, which I think is totally understandable. Like, I have a hard time waiting 10 minutes for things. Um, It's why we invented the microwave. Um, So, like, I get why after 10 years of not having children that she would have some doubts. But instead of dealing with her doubts in faith, like Abram, and going to God and talking about those doubts, instead of dealing with her doubts in faith, she, she moves away from God. She gets, instead of getting better, she gets bitter. She says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Um, Let me just ask you, is that true? Sarah's takeaway is God doesn't want me to have children. Now, if you've been with us in the narrative, you know that God does want her to have children. He specifically promised that he's banking his plan for the cosmos on her child. Um, And I think inside of that, the Lord has prevented me from having children. First of all, it's not accurate. It's not true to what God has said. But secondly, I think there's this accusation baked in there. Maybe you can hear it if God doesn't care about me. I see him doing it for everyone else, but he's not going to do it for me. And is it true that God doesn't care about Sarah? No. 
We've seen God literally move heaven and earth and do mighty miracles in the land of Egypt to rescue her from a pervert's harem. So we know that God is for this woman. We've seen her move, him move in mighty ways in her life to care for her, to protect her. He's given her this great promise of what he's going to do. But this is what happens when in our doubt, instead of going to God and talking about that, we go to others and talk about God you can begin to believe crazy things about God. When, when you don't remember how faithful God has been to you in your past, when you don't deal with your doubt in light of those things, you don't get better, you get bitter. You begin to believe crazy things like God doesn't love me, God's not for me, he doesn't care about me, he has given up on me. And, and this is where Sarah's at at the start of our text. And, and what you've got to see is it's not just her relationship with God, that's affected by her faithlessness. Um, it's actually her relationship with other people. And in the Bible, these are always connected. Our walk with God is always going to bend out in our walk with other people. So Sarai, she's moving away from God in her doubt. She's growing bitter and resentful. She's believing crazy things that are antithetical to the God that has revealed himself to her over and over again. And so there's a distance in her walk with God. But now that distance bends out in her relationships with other people. She comes up with this plan that simply sounds crazy to us as modern people. Um, but actually, it was a fairly common practice um, in the ancient world, um, where if a woman was unable to conceive, uh, what she would often do, what, what was the common practice, is if you were a woman of means and you had servants, um, you could bring in one of your servants uh, to basically conceive for you, so that when that child is born, you could take that child from her, and in some like weird kind of ancient culture way, that would become your child. Um, it was basically the Handmaid's Tale, um, which, um, can I just point out the irony of a book and turn into a show that's built to critique Christians for how stupid and backwards we are being built on a story that the Bible itself critiques? If you've never seen the story, they're basically like, yeah, Christians love doing this. I'm like, if your takeaway from this story is that God, the Bible, and God's people are two thumbs up on what's going on here, I don't think we're the ones that are ignorant and stupid. Um, but yeah, me. I'm not a huge fan of that show, if you can tell, because I'm not a huge fan of people that take the Bible out of context and try to use it like a stick to beat other people. Anyway, anyway, um, all that said, the point is, this was a practice that treated surrogate mothers um, very cheaply in the ancient world. Um, it's a practice that the Bible condemns. But the culture at the time didn't condemn. They just thought it was normal. What they would do uh, is uh, a woman would be given in marriage so long as it is convenient for her mistress. And as soon as that woman would conceive and bear a child, then she, the mistress would take the child from her forcibly and kick her to the curb. Um, it was an awful thing. And, and, and look, you don't have to understand ancient Near Eastern cultures to understand how awful this was for Hagar. Um, just look at the text. Do you notice every time Hagar's mentioned, she is either being given by someone or to someone? Do you notice that no one stopped to ask, hey, I wonder what Hagar thinks? 
I wonder what she wants. I wonder what her dreams for her wedding day are. Maybe we should consult her in this. None of that is present here. Hagar is basically treated as an object that is passed from one person to the next to the next. She is presented as someone who has no agency in this story, but instead she is presented as an object to be used rather than a person to be loved and served and respected and honored. Because here's the point. When you lack faith, you not only grow cold in your relationship with God, but lacking a life-giving relationship with God where all your needs are met from Him, you begin to treat everyone around you as objects to be used to try to make up for what you lack in God. And so, yeah, one way to read this story, if you want to write a book to knock on Christians, is, oh my goodness, this is in the Bible. God must love this. Another way to read it is in context and see Sarah's having a bad day, and look at what she does in her bad day, and we'll eventually see as the story continues how God's going to intervene because he's not cool with this. But this is what happens when there's distance in our walk with God. We begin to use other people because we're cut off from the source of life. And so we have to try to find it by using and taking from one another. And this is the Bible's explanation for what's gone so terribly wrong with the world. Um, See, we could look at this story. uh, We could look at Sarah in this story and we could judge her. Um, Or we could look at this story with Sarah and we could identify with her. Uh, You could approach this text. This is another bad way to approach the Bible, but I'll just give you the options. You could approach the Bible very religiously and say there are good people and bad people. I'm one of the good people, and I'm going to look down on the bad people. Or we can approach it um, very humbly and repentantly and realize there's one good person, it's Jesus. The rest of us are bad people that are loved by a good God and being made new. And that process is imperfect. And so we're going to learn from the good days, but we're dang sure going to learn from the bad days so that maybe by God's grace, they could pay our stupid tax on this one. And so I would encourage us not to look at Sarah with judgment, but to look and consider, have I ever done this? I mean, anyone in here, you don't need to raise your hand, but anyone in here ever um, stick one person with all the work in a group project because you knew they were so type A um, that they wouldn't not do a great job so you could go do whatever else you wanted to do? Um, Anyone in here uh, ever gossip and say horrible things about another person behind their back to a group of people so that that people would admire and look on you? Um, Here's one I know none of you have ever done. Um, But have you ever seen those people that when traffic is piling up, um, and, and maybe they're running a little late, who knows what's going on in their world, they can see the traffic piling up, and so they stay in the exit lane until the very last second, and then they jump in and cut off everyone because they're so much more important than everyone else that was patiently waiting in line. You know those people? See, we can laugh at these things because I think that we've all been there. But I just want to slow down and say, okay, what are we doing when we're doing that? Effectively, what we are doing is treating the other people as objects to be used. That your time isn't as important as my time, and so I'm going to make you do all the group work in the project. That your reputation isn't as important as my reputation, so I'm going to tarnish you just to try to lift myself um, or I don't know what's going on in the driving scenario. Someone's going to have to tell me why people do that after service, but I think at some level, it's I think I'm more important than you. Your time doesn't really matter. What really matters is my time because there's me and there's you. You, object to be used. Me, I've got a meeting to get to. 
what we're doing in all these cases is we're treating people around us as objects to be used. And, and, and look, these are common. We can laugh them off. Um, we've all done it except for the exit lane one. Some of you are like, he has real issues with people doing that. Um, I, I think we've all done these things. But um, what I want you to see is that basic mentality that expresses itself in small ways, that sees the people around us as objects to be moved around, pieces on a chessboard and at the game that we're playing. That mentality is what's underneath all the great sins of our day that we all rightly like, shock at. Like, if you want to talk about racism, you want to talk about sex trafficking, you want to talk about abuse, you want to talk about abortion? What all of this is, is one person or group of people saying, your humanity does not matter. And so you are going to become an object that I'm going to use to lift up my own life because I don't have a relationship that's working right with God right now. And so I'm going to have to try to steal something from you to make up what I lack over here. And, and so here's the lesson that in all of this. This is the lesson that we see in Sarah's life in this story. When we lack faith, we begin to view other people as objects. And a great question I think we could be asking in light of this story, rather than looking at how everyone else does that and being so shocked that they do it, I think a humble and a gospel way to approach the scripture would be to ask the question, God, where am I doing this? Is there anywhere in my life where I am treating another person as an object to be used? Look, it might seem small to you. You might be like, that's nothing compared to someone that would abuse another person. But here's what I can tell you. I guarantee you that thing does not seem small to that person. And this may be an opportunity for you to repent when the sin is small and get back to living by faith and become a more life-giving person. That's what we see in Sarah in this story. Um, now let's chat about Abram. Um, because some of you might be like, hey, I might not be like lighting the world on fire. I might not be like living by faith and pushing back foreign armies and going after the lots in my life. But at least I'm not like the Sarah here. Um, no, you're not like Sarah. You're just like Abram here, which I hope you're going to see is non-improvement. Um, and, and, and one of the best ways to see that is just to read Genesis as one connected story. I know we're taking parts of this book over four years, so it may be hard, but um, what I would tell you is this story echoes the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so one of the things you may do this week is read Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 16 uh, together. One of the things you're going to notice um, is it's the same progression of verbs. Um, that just like Eve takes the fruit, she gives some to her husband who is doing what? Nothing. You guys nailed it. Nothing. He's just standing there. Same thing going on here. Sarah has gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. She thinks that God is against her, just like Eve thinks that God is holding out on her. And, and so she takes, she gives something to Abraham, someone to Abraham in this case. And rather than saying, wait a minute, didn't God just tell me like in the previous chapter Something about, no, we're still on plan A. We are going to have this child through you, hun. We don't need to go off into cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs land. Let's trust the Lord. Rather than saying, I'm not sure this is right, what Abram does is just like Genesis 3, same exact words. He listens to the voice of his wife. 
And in so doing, he not only gives glad approval to her sin, but he ends up joining her in it. And and I know the objections, like when Karen texted me this week and was chirping Father Abraham. (laughs) You know, my first reaction is, hey, he just listened to what his wife wanted. Like, what do you want from the guy? There's a no-win scenario. Honey, I don't think we should do this. Why do you hate me? (laughs) Or he doesn't, and then why do you hate me? It feels like a non-no-win scenario. Um, But here's the lesson. Sometimes life is filled like no-win scenarios. And when the no-win scenario is either my wife can be mad at me um, or I can sin against the Lord and hurt other people, take take the one where your wife's going to be mad at you and and trust that one to the Lord. See, Abram, if he was a very religious person, he would say, but I was just listening to the voice of my wife. You told me to love my wife, that she's my co-heir, that we're partners in this faith thing. I'm just listening to her. But he doesn't do that because he's not a religious person. He's a faith-filled person. And Abram's going to get back to this place where he realizes, no, I shouldn't have listened to the voice of my wife. I should have listened to the voice of God. I mean, now, now don't clip me out of context here and say, pastor thinks you shouldn't listen to your wife. No, you are co-heirs. You should work together. But when one spouse disagrees with the Lord, you listen to the Lord, even if your spouse doesn't like it. He should have listened to the voice of God. But instead, he listened to his wife. He was, I'm going to put a word on it. He was passive. He just says, whatever you want to do, honey. Two occasions in this story, whatever you want to do. Is that, is that the plan now? Sure, go for it. Is that the plan now? Sure, go for it. He didn't remind her of God's promise. He didn't lead. He didn't contribute to the conversation. He didn't do anything. And here's the second lesson. Here's the lesson we've got to draw from Abram here. Passivity is sin. See, there's a myth in the church today. Um, like we believe, I think a lot of us tend to believe that there's some in-between, um, between faith and sin. And in this gap, over here, this is like varsity Christians. This is like Abram. Over here, this is like the devil and Sarah in this story. And then in between, there's all of us where we're just going to coast, where we might not be living by faith. I mean, that takes a lot of effort to wake up in the morning, start your day, talk to God, get direction from him, be filled with his spirit. We're not going to be over there, but we're dang sure not going to be over here. Like we're not going to suggest that we treat someone like an object. And so maybe we think, hey, I'm doing pretty good in the middle. Not looking like Jesus, but I'm also not looking like the person that lives next to me. And what I hope you can see in the story is there is no in-between. I mean, like, okay, let's just have some real talk. Um, Have you ever seen someone in your life lose their minds. And you see that, and you go, wow, that's some kind of crazy. At least I'm not doing that. And then you can begin to justify this passivity in the middle here. Anyone ever been there where you kind of see the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over here, and you're like, I'm feeling pretty good about me right now. What I hope you will see in this story is that unless you engage in that moment that that person in your life is losing their mind, unless you would engage in that moment in faith to gently 
remind that person of the good news of Jesus and all that he has done and promised to be for us? If you just sit there and stay silent and go, whoa, I'm not even sure what to say in that moment. If you just sit there passively, that passivity is itself a sin because there is no in-between between faith and sin. The second you downshift from this fantastic adventure and trusting God and saying, God, I believe you put me here for a perfect. I believe the gospel is real. I'm going to love enough to gently and appropriately speak the gospel here, but I am going to speak the good news. The second you downshift from that to say, I'm not going to say anything. The game's on. I just want to watch the game in peace. If, if she could just be crazy and go off in the other room, then I can watch this in peace. The second that you say that, you have now become a part of the problem. That's what the author of Genesis is telling us by taking the language of Adam that literally destroyed the world and reproducing it with Abram here. This is his not-so-subtle way of saying, yeah, this is Abram's fall moment. It's terrible. And so lest we begin to invent this category between faith and sin where we can just coast, I hope we will see that the second Father Abram downshifts, it's just like the fall all over again. And and if you don't believe me, I'll give you uh, one more reference here. Uh, The New Testament will actually address this. In Romans chapter 14, um, the Apostle Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, he writes this, uh, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, in the Bible, there are two categories, living by trust in the living God or not trusting the living God. There is no in-between. And so those moments where you feel like you're in-between, what the story of Abram invites us to realize is whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And the second we can begin to be passive, to say whatever you want to do, I don't feel like engaging right now, that is not an invented in-between. That is a movement from here and to here. And so what I'd say is maybe we shouldn't be so quick to judge our boy, Abram. Because I think there's a lot, in a lot of ways, if someone were writing the biography of our life, we could be presented as the person that stays silent and passive in the face of other people being used as objects. We could be the people that stay silent and say nothing and are passive and do nothing. And so um, my encouragement to you here would be let's learn from our boy Abram that there's no in-between between faith and sin, and let's repent of our passivity and get back to living by faith that we might become like the Abram that you will see God describe in chapter 18 is a man who does justice and righteousness in all the earth. This is when we live by faith, we can become agents for justice and renewal and goodness. But as long as we think there's this mushy middle, our silence will always give glad approval to, and even in some worst case scenarios, it will lead us into actually joining in the darkness around us. That's what we see from Abram. Now, finally, we've got to talk about Hagar. Um, And I'll just say this. A lot of commentaries frame Hagar as kind of an opportunist, Um, kind of like a younger lady that marries a man her father's age because he's rich, and she goes, well, I'll definitely outlive him, and so I get all of his stuff. You you kind of know the scenario I'm talking about? Um, Let me just ask you, is that what you see in the text here? No. No. Nowhere in here does Hagar put on her skimpiest tunic 
and head over to Abram's tent and go, you know what, I'm sick of being a servant. If I could just get the big guy's attention, I could improve my station in life. No, what the text says is this was Sarah's idea. And so here's just some Bible reading 101 because I'm feeling spicy today. Um, If the text explicitly says it was Sarah's idea and it says nothing of Hagar's motivations, then maybe we should stick with what the Holy Spirit put in the text instead of read our dumb, sexist, and stupid ideas into the text. I do not like the commentaries that present Hagar as an opportunist because it gives those morons over at the Handmaid's Tale ammunition to go look at the Christians. No, those guys are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs too. Let's stick with the Bible and let the Bible define Christians. Nothing in this text presents Hagar as an opportunist. In fact, if you actually pay attention to the text, like I said earlier, She's presented as having no agency at all in this story. She has passed from Sarah to Abram. She has no voice in this story. She doesn't even speak in these verses. And and that's what I think makes this such a tragic story. And that's why I get so angry when otherwise good commentaries are like, well, maybe Hagar thought this was a good idea. I'm like, well, maybe you should shut up. Nothing in the text says that. This is a woman who is being victimized and used. And and you've got to be honest with that. Let's stop trying to protect the great leaders of the faith by covering up sin. And let's be honest about what it is. Because God can deal with our sin, but not if we hide it. This is a great sin in this story. It's what makes it so tragic. Sarah takes her and she passes her off to this dirty old man, Abram, who goes, sure, honey, I think that's a great idea. I imagine this was an awful experience for Hagar. And so when she gets pregnant, when maybe for the first time in her entire life, she has this small window of time where she actually has some voice, she actually has some say in what's going to happen to her for the next nine months, she does what I think we would all do in that scenario. She uses her newfound power to torment Sarah text says she looks on her with contempt. That word is a loaded word in the book of Genesis. It's translated elsewhere as cursing, which is one of the great themes of Genesis. You can bless or you can curse. She's looking down upon her. It's like she goes, you know, Abram, do you you think the baby's going to look like you? Is he going to have your eyes? Is he going to have your nose? Because I know it's not going to look like Sarah. Like, she begins to torment this woman. She takes the newfound voice and power she has to push down the one who is once her tormentor. Now, does this make the situation any better? No. It makes a bad situation worse. Where Sarah goes to Abram and she's like, buddy, you've got to rein this in. This is crazy. I'm not going to let her talk to me like that. And so passive old Abram is like, oh, whatever you want to do, honey. And so Sarah turns the tables and she now makes Hagar's life a living hell to the point where, look at verse 6, she has to run away for her own safety. Here's the lesson that we can see from Hagar. Becoming the oppressor is no better than being oppressed. Because as long as this is your solution to the sin problem of the world, as long as your solution is all the problems are power dynamics, and so what I'm going to do is try to get enough power to push down the people that once pushed me down, as long as that is your solution, it can always backfire against you like it does in this story, and hear this, like it always has throughout history. 
And I totally get why Hagar would respond this way. It's how I want to respond to my flesh. That's where some of you are like, Pastor, you've got anger issues that you would say we would all respond that way. Okay, I'll tell you, your pastor would respond this way in my flesh. Um, A couple weeks ago, one of our daughters came home and told us that a boy at school called her a mean name. When I heard that, I wanted to tell her, well, you should tell him that if he wasn't so short and ugly, he wouldn't need to talk like that to overcompensate, right? Like I wanted to, (laughs) but the whole point of this series, I didn't tell her that by the way, but I thought it real hard. So I get why Hagar does what she did. But the whole point of this series is that living by faith is better than living by the flesh. That living by faith can lead to a type of life that living by the flesh never could. And so what does it look like to live by faith when you're sinned against? I love it when you ask the next thing I'm about to answer. Um, Verse 7, let's look at it. The angel of the Lord What's that next word? Found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Okay, so here's our fourth character in the story. And when he steps onto the scene, everything begins to change. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Um, I'm going to just go on a limb and say because he called her by name, he probably has the answer to those questions. But he's doing just like what we'll see the Lord Jesus do at another well in John chapter 4 with another hurting woman. He's asking questions to draw her out. Verse uh, 8, she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So he asks her these questions to draw her out. What are you doing here? What's your story? He's inviting her into relationship. And then he says something challenging. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Why would she do that? Verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber La Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So why would she do that? Why would she go back? Here's why. Because this figure she's talking to is no mere angel. I, I don't know when it dawns on her. Uh, maybe it was when he called her by name. And she realized, I'm on the run. Nobody knows who I am here. Maybe that was the point where she realized this is the living God. Um, maybe it was the point when he starts telling her about the baby in her womb, which he shouldn't know about. It's uh, when he starts, like, you got to remember, this is before ultrasounds. 
And, and this is before, like, she's wearing very baggy clothing as would have been appropriate in that day to cover kind of up her body. This was not public information. And, and he comes up to her and he says, um, hey, you're pregnant and I'm going to spoil all the pr- surprises. You're going to have a son. And um, I've got the name all picked out for you because here's what I'm going to do. It's going to be awesome and you're going to need a right name for it. I'm going to bless this child because I have seen your affliction, and I am going to redeem it. This blows her mind. Because her whole life, Hagar was used to being seen as an object. And here, at the moment where her whole world has blown up around her, when she is at her worst, she is finally seen as something more than an object. She's seen as a person whose pain matters. A person who is worth chasing after and pursuing into the wilderness until you can say, I found you. Oh, you were very quick, but I finally caught up to. She is finally seen as a person worth loving and pursuing. And she's, here's the crazy thing. She's not just seen this way by another human. It's not Abram who comes to her rescue, but it is God himself. And this is crazy. This is the gospel. This is why I think this story is in here, so that we would know what our God is like, because what we see from cover to cover in the Bible is that God sees you. He saw you when you were still in your mother's womb, like Ishmael here. He knew you even back then and loved you back then. Ephesians 1 says that God loved you before the foundations of the world. Before the cosmos was fully set, he saw you, he loved you before you could do good or bad, and he has seen everything that has happened to you since the day you were born. You might have thought you were alone, but you were never alone. He was there. He could see you. He has seen every tear you've ever cried, and he was so moved by your pain that in the fullness of time, he wouldn't just send messengers to the earth, that he would put on flesh and come to the earth himself to step out of the comfort of heaven and step into our broken world to make a way to redeem your pain. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took our darkness onto himself. He took the sins that we commit and the sins that people commit against us and the shame that we carry because of the things that have been done to us. He took it into his very body on the cross and he took it to the grave and he left it there so that after defeating death and walking out of the tomb three days later, he could chase us down and find us in the moment of our greatest need and proclaim the good news just like he did to Hagar. He sees you. He loves you. He knows what's been done to you. And what we can see on this side of the cross, Hagar can see glimpses of this as he speaks to her in this insane moment. What we can see on the other side of a cross where this God has bled and died and taken on scars for us is we can see that whatever has been done to us, there's no way it's bigger than his cross. His cross has defeated death. And so whatever baggage we carry because of this, he knows our sorrow, he knows our shame, and hear me, he has the power to not only free you from that, but to lift you from that and to redeem that awful thing that's been done to you, to give you a future and a hope. And this is the final lesson we see in this story. 
God will redeem your pain if you will trust him with it. That's what the go back is all about. He says, Sarah, or Hagar, you're going to have to trust me. I know you don't want to go back. I know Sarah's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but, you know, I've got a plan for her. She's not going to be so bad eventually. And so I want you to go back because when you go back, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to redeem your pain. And no matter what Sarah does, life will come from this. I'll protect you from her. It's much like the early church when Saul, now Paul, shows up and like, this guy was killing us like a week ago. Should we let him into the gathering? And God is like, I've got you. He asks her to trust him with his pain. And so if rather than taking your pain into your own hands and trying to return the evil that has been done to you, you say, God, I know that you see what's been done to me. And so would you deal with this in your perfect justice? So I don't have to deal with it in my imperfect justice. That's what it looks like to trust God with your pain. It doesn't mean to deny it. It means to bring it to the one who bled and died and has scars and knows our sorrows and shame. This is what most of the Psalms are about. They are a guide on how to do this. And it would be a whole nother sermon, but I just want to tell you, if you do this, it's going to be a raw process. Psalm 55, one of the best examples of this, begins with uh, King David basically saying, hey, let this friend of mine that betrayed me, let him go to hell and don't take it a long time getting him there. It can be a raw process. But as you bring your pain to God, what we see in Hagar's story, and it will continue, and what we see in the Psalms is God will meet you there. And when you realize that he sees you and is with you there, it takes away the need for you and I to return the evil done to us against those who have committed it. And it frees us up to live by faith in a God who can redeem our pain and use it to bring great good into the world. Um, It's kind of like if you watch any contact sports. Um, If you've ever seen the moment where one player will foul another player, Um, what is often likely to happen if the ref doesn't see is that player is going to do something far worse to retaliate. It's also this way with small children, but let's stick to sports because I've already given you the children illustration. Um, It's it's very likely that one player is going to punch another one in the face unless they see the ref's hand go up. But if they see the ref's hand go up, they realize, okay, I don't need to do this right now. And in fact, if I I don't do this right now, something far more redemptive is going to come out. We're going to get a power play. We're going to beat them on the scoreboard, send them home crying. And that's going to be far more than I could do with my fist to their face. I'm, I'm a hockey fan, by the way. Apply that as you need to to whatever sports you watch. Um, the, the point is, that's what's happening here. Hagar, Hagar sees God's hand go up. She goes, wow, you've seen all that's happened to me? And she is blown away that of all people, it's God who would see her. It is God who would care enough to notice and to throw her hand up. And that is what enables her to go back, to lean in his promise, to redeem all that's been done and give her a future and a hope. And in so doing, she becomes an incredible model to all of us as to what it looks like to live by faith when you've been sinned against. And so we would invite you to do that this morning. Look, I I don't know how you walk in here. Maybe you're like Hagar and you walk in here in pain and, and faith for you looks like bringing that pain to him this morning, believing that he'll meet you there, 
he, he sees you, that he loves you, and he won't let this pain have the last word in your life. We'd invite you to take some time to do that in prayer this morning. Um, or, or maybe if you're honest, maybe you're more like Sarah. And so maybe for you, responding to this message in faith means to repent of the ways that you've been treating the Hagars in your life. We live in a culture that loves to cancel the Sarahs of the world. Um, but what I hope you're realizing by this point in the series is that God sees everything about you. And he loves you anyway. That's the gospel, that in full view of how he knew Sarah would fail on this day, he called her while she was still living in Ur and at her worst. He rescued her from Egypt, and we're going to see in a few chapters, he's going to come through and give the promised child in full view of the ways she would fail. He chooses her because this is how God works. He's a God of redemption and grace. He doesn't cast us aside in our failures. He says, come to me and I will take on your failures and I will remove them from you and give you a new heart and a new life and make you a new kind of person. And so maybe rather than blaming God or the Abrams in your life this morning for the things you've done and say all the reasons this doesn't apply to you, maybe you simply say sorry to God for what I've done and you receive his grace that's not built for a future version of you, but the one right now sitting in the pew. And I can't believe that, that you would receive his grace right there and walk out of here a new kind of person, able to bring the kind of life that you've received to that relationship that you have harmed. Uh, maybe you need to go and say sorry to that person this week as a next step of faith. What I want you to hear from me, if you identify with Sarah at all in this story, is God sees you too, and he loves you anyway, right as you are. And he'll go with you as you go from here. Um, and finally, others of us, maybe you're more like Abram. And faith for you this morning looks like repenting of passivity and getting in the game. Uh, where you see people being used rather than staying silent or just going along with the sin of the culture. Maybe you need to speak up and say something lovingly, appropriately, kindly. But in faith, believing that there's a God of perfect justice who will one day bring his justice into this world. And until then, we get to be agents of renewal, bending that justice wherever we go. Maybe there's something that you need to speak up about this week. And love enough to get in the game. Now, my hope for us as a church is that we would so live by faith in the God who sees us and loves us anyway, that we would become like the man of faith we're going to read about in Genesis chapter 18, where God describes Abram as a man who does justice and righteousness in the earth. May we become a place where the Hagars of the world feel safe to flee, where they would feel seen not only by the Lord, but by his people where they can feel the love and the protection and care of our great God and Savior, Jesus, as we proclaim him week in and week out, and as we share that life and love through communion and through our community together all week long. May we be a church that does justice and righteousness in our day because we really believe God sees. He loves us anyway, but he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. Those are my hopes and prayers for myself and for all of us as we come out of this story. And so let me pray for you, and then we'll give you some time to get to responding. Father God, thank you that you are a God who sees. Thank you that you love us enough to throw your hand up and say, I'm not going to let that thing go. And thank you that you're not just a God of perfect justice, but you're a God of unending grace, and that you would send your son to die in our place 
so that we would never have to feel condemned, but the moment we feel condemned, we can come to you and receive your forgiveness and your righteousness. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room. Wherever we walk in here, whatever character we identify, whatever baggage we bring into this room, God, would you help us to get honest with you right now? Lower our defense mechanisms. Let us be real with you about where we're at. Would you reveal our heart to us? And would you help us to believe the gospel that you see us and love us anyway? And would you free us to respond in faith this morning and to keep responding in faith all week long? We love you and we need your help to do this. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.